Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. Today's big idea, I I mentioned the picture that Naomi crafted for us. We have uh, Paul preaching in in Athens. And and one of the reasons that I wanted to do this story, it's not super adventurous. So our series this summer has been Adventures in the Book of Acts. Um, it's, It's maybe not the most adventurous of stories. But I really believe that Paul's conversations with the philosophers in Athens is a really helpful model for us in considering uh, the challenge that, that we might face in bringing the gospel to people across any types of, of cultural lines. And so uh, the whole point of this series, Adventures in Acts, has been to look at the lives of first-generation Christians living in the first century A.D., how they responded to the reality of the risen Christ, and how they shared that reality with the world around them. In, in looking at their lives, the stories, and what they did, and, and trying to apply to ourselves. What does this mean for us? What does it look like to live the reality of the risen Christ out in the world around us today? And so today I, I'm really hoping to learn from, from the Apostle Paul, uh, who was really the first, the first one of the apostles to effectively bridge the gap between the Jews, whose culture and history and religion uh, set them up to hear the gospel, and into the Gentiles who were living in a totally different context and, um, and, and weren't really prepped for the gospel in the same way that the Jews were. And, and Paul was, was in many ways uh, a huge proponent for the gospel, reaching outside of Judaism and ministering to the rest of the world, which has significance for any of us who are not ethnically Jewish. This, this is a big deal that the gospel broke outside of, of one religion and began to reach out to people from every tribe and tongue and, and background all around the world. So... Um, as we've been doing this series, a lot of what we've, we've read has revealed to us just how differently people lived in the first century than they live today. And, and, and at times, maybe you're reading these stories and you're thinking about how differently people live. And, and at times, it's, it's almost like we're taking a trip uh, into a different world or, or into a, a foreign country. How many of you have traveled outside of the United States of America? We're a pretty well-traveled group of people. Uh, How many of you have traveled outside of the United States of America and intentionally learned a few words in a different language to help you communicate with the people there? Good job. That's the way to be sensitive and mature travelers. Um, Sometimes when people visit a different city or a different country or different culture, they experience something that social scientists call culture shock. This is inner feeling of anxiety and, and disorientation, and it's, it's due to being in a space with, with people who are just not like you at all. Uh, my family was fortunate enough to do some traveling this summer, and I have a brother who lives in Ireland, and we went to Ireland, and you might think, gosh, the Irish are a lot like the Americans, last place you would ever experience culture shock, but, uh, but we did, and it was in this. They believe that anything above, I don't know, 57 degrees Fahrenheit is swimming weather. Can you believe this? And so 
Maybe it's just rained, it's an overcast day, but it's 59, and the Irish are walking around like, it's time to go to the beach and go swimming. And so uh, my sister-in-law, who is Irish, went swimming. Uh, Some kids went swimming. I did not go swimming. Uh, It's crazy. It's crazy what some people consider as swimming weather. Now, around here, um, we've had family visiting the the Pacific Northwest from outside of the Pacific Northwest, and they know that we live close to the beach, and so we we go, we're going to go to the beach. And I don't know why they expect this, but they seem to expect that we live in a tropical environment where going to the beach means, you know, swimsuits and and playing in the water. And then we would get to the beach and it would be gray and it would be overcast and and nobody but tiny children and people in wetsuits are swimming. And they experience their own dose of culture shock. Like, what? This isn't the beach? Yeah, this is, look at it. You just sit here and you look at it. And you bring your umbrella. Um... So we've been following Paul on his second missionary journey. And on his second missionary journey, he's going into parts of the world that he's never been before. Uh, As we've been following, he was moving uh, west across what's present-day Turkey. And then he gets to the Aegean coast, uh, coastal line that's that's the coast of Greece going down south uh, along the Aegean Sea. And he ends up in the city of Athens, a place he's never been before in his life. And in the city of Athens... Paul gets his own dose of culture shock. We'll read about it in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. If you want to turn your Bibles or your phone apps there, we can read together. Acts chapter 17, verse 16 says, While Paul was waiting for them, so Paul had been traveling with a group of people, and he was uh, traveling a little more efficiently at this point. And he gets ahead of the group, and he's waiting for them to meet up. They're all going to meet up in Athens and then figure out what to do next. Uh, So while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So Paul had grown up in a Jewish household, uh, a strict monotheistic culture. First century Judaism had all kinds of strict rules that governed almost every aspect of your daily life. And people held to them very, very firmly. Uh, Rules about where you who you can eat with, what you can eat, rules about what you wear, how you wear your hair. I mean, covering the full gambit of a life experience. And this is the culture that Paul grew up in. And because a big deal was hanging out with the right people in first century Judaism, we can assume that to some degree Paul was fairly limited in how much he had been around or really immersed himself in the cultures that surrounded him. I mean, we do know that he lived in what was a a present-day Greco-Roman society. But when he gets to Athens, apparently he's never seen anything quite like this before. Now, Athens was, was, uh, you know, first century Athens in particular. This is a city of of Greek philosophers, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. This is the birthplace of, of much of what divides Western culture and Western society from Eastern culture and society. Uh, The Greek philosophers had all kinds of ideas about how people should govern themselves. They were champions for the individual and the individual's rights and things like that. And and so uh, it was very, very different from the Eastern, Near East culture that Paul had had grown up in. Uh, The Greeks had a different, different concepts about God than 
the, the Jews who grew up believing there's just one supreme God who's ruling over everything else in creation. Uh, the ancient, ancient Athenians had like 20 or more total gods. And then they had all the Titans that came through. And then they had about a dozen gods who were supposed to be living up on Mount Olympus. Uh, and so they had this entire pantheon of different gods who were associated to uh, just about everything that happens in the natural world. And because they had so many gods, there's, there's statues and idols and altars to these gods all over the place. And Paul gets into the city, and his mind is just going bonkers. He's deeply troubled because what he sees all around him is a violation of, the, of God's first commandment, that God is one and that Israel should only worship the one God. And he sees people worshiping all kinds of people. So what does Paul do? when he's immersed in a culture that's so deeply troubling to him. Well, Paul has a strategy. He, he gets a marker and some poster board, and he sets up camp on a corner with a sign that says, Repent, the end is near. And then he just hangs out in Athens and talks to anyone who is willing to come up to him with that. Nope, that's not what he does. Paul's strategy in Athens is to talk with them in such a way that keeps the conversation going. I think I have a slide for that, because if you kids are working on the back of your sheets... That's, a, that's the first fill in the blank is, is Paul talks in such a way or Paul talks in a way that keeps the conversation going. It might show up on the screen. It might not. Um, verse 17, Paul's deeply distressed. So what does he do? He reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Greek society was a society that uh, in contrast to like Eastern society, it was a society that prided itself on being built on reason. And so one of the things that we see Paul doing right away is speaking the language of reason with them. He comes into the marketplace. He's going to the Jewish synagogues that were there and he's reasoning with them day by day. Verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Now, we read that word debate today, and especially if you're trying to win friends and influence people, we would say that debating is not the way to do that. But what we have to remember about Athens is that this is what these guys loved to do. They loved to get to together and debate about the nature of life, the nature of God, and what life is all about. These philosophers, you might say this, is, this was their chosen career, to debate. So the interesting thing is that Paul was also trained in rhetoric, trained in debate. And so in some ways you might say, wow, from Paul's childhood, God was in a way preparing him for this moment to come to Athens and to be able to speak the language of the philosophers and, and spar with them verbally uh, in a way that they would find uh, at least intellectually stimulating, if nothing else, a way that would it would really speak their language. Um, so Paul's reasoning with them. He's having the, the, the debates are happening and, uh, and Paul's comfortably stepping into the world. And we'll continue reading in, in the middle of verse 18. It says, some of them began to ask, what is this babbler trying to say? So some of them are not receiving it so well. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? 
You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. You notice that something about the way that Paul engaged in this debate, something about the way that he spoke, encouraged these people to do what? To keep talking, to keep the conversation going. Verse 21, the author Luke adds, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That's according to Luke, his perspective of Athens in the first century. So Paul stands up in the meeting of the Areopagus. This was the, the aristocratic council in Athens. We would imagine that there is, like any major city, there's a working class people. Uh, the working class people were too busy earning a living to become philosophers. But the aristocracy, this is what they do. They sit around and talk about life and talk about ideas. And Paul's invited to this council to share his ideas about the resurrection of Christ. Paul begins to speak. He says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious, referencing the idols and the statues that are all around. He says, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant or unaware of the very thing that you worship, and this is is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul's been invited to speak to this influential group of philosophers and ruling, ruling class in the city of Athens, and he starts with a place that they are familiar with. He goes right into, you know your city, I've been walking around your city, I've seen the statues, I've seen all the idols, I even saw an altar that was built to an unknown god. If you can embrace for a few moments the mindset of first century Athenians who believe in a host of different gods who are overseeing the natural phenomenon that they see all around them, and in their mindset, this host of gods are people that you do not want to step on the wrong side of at any second or any moment. And because there's so many of them, we have trouble keeping them all straight, and we're not really sure who's behind what observable phenomenon that we see in society, just to be safe. We've built an altar to the unknown God as well. Just to be safe, we are making sacrifices to the unknown God just to be sure that, I don't know, hail's not going to fall on our next crop or we're going to win our next battle or something like that. So notice how Paul starts his speech. You know, here he is. He's in the Athenians' territory. And he doesn't start with his own God or his own ideas. He doesn't start with Abraham or the Garden of Eden or... King David or the prophets, he starts with the Athenians' worldview and where they are at. This leads us to another really helpful evangelistic strategy, and that is whenever it is possible, meet people where they are at. Sometimes there's some concern about meeting people where they are at. Like, no, I, I want to start. I just want to start with you know, the book of Romans. Can I start with the book of Romans? Well, you can, and maybe, you know, do whatever the Spirit leads you to do. But when you are meeting people where they are at, you are proclaiming the gospel. What is the gospel? That the Word of God, who was from the beginning, clothed Himself in humanity to meet us where we are at. 
when you are willing to get into the world that somebody else is in and enter the place that they're at and validate their experiences and their perspective and, and how they're looking at the world, you are proclaiming to the world that the one who was in the know and the one who knows everything was willing to stoop down to, to reach the level that we needed him to be at, to communicate with us and meet us where we're at. You're proclaiming the gospel when you meet people where they're at. And you're doing what Jesus did, just like he did it. No shortcuts. The word sees humanity that needs to be saved and says, I will become humanity. Takes on flesh. It does the whole like toddler, child, adolescent, you know, went through puberty, went through the awkward stage, all of that in order to meet us where we're at. Scripture says that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He who was innocent was willing to be numbered with transgressors, meeting us where we're at. So Paul, who's grown up in a monotheistic culture that you know was never allowed to to eat with Gentiles, to eat the food that they're eating, wasn't allowed to associate with them. He's here at a gathering of Gentiles, and he's meeting them where they're at because he knows this is what it is to be like Jesus. He knows what it's like to be met by Jesus in the place that he was at. And so because Paul's willing to meet them where they're at, this opens an op- a door for the gospel to be shared. He says to the Athenians, I'm going to tell you about this unknown God. And he says, the God who made the world, this is verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples built by human hands, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Paul is painting a picture of the heavenly realms, painting a picture of the divine being that is different from what the Athenians had assumed about him. He's saying that it is God who made the world, not God's. He's saying that God doesn't live in the temples that are made by human hands and that God doesn't need anything from us. Remember, these first century Athenians are believing in a Greek pantheon of gods. These gods are capricious and moody, these gods are living their lives, vying with one another for control of the universe and vying with one another for the, the, the worship and the attention of humanity. These Greeks believe that out of warfare amongst the gods, the world was created. That, out, that much of what we see in the world around us is the results of, of these gods who have been competing with each other. And Paul says, no, beyond that reality, there is a God who's above it all, who's not in competition with anyone, and who doesn't need a single thing from any of us. And yet he's also the God who has made everything. He's the one who's over it all, and his goodness and his generosity describes the origin of everything that we see, and not some kind of cosmic conflict. So you might ask, well, if God doesn't need anything from us, why has he created us? Why go to all the trouble of making this world if it's a God who doesn't need anything from us, doesn't live in the houses that we build for him, and uh, doesn't, doesn't need us? 
Paul says in verse 27, God did all of this. God made everything. He established the people, established the nations. God did all of this so that they would seek him, perhaps reach out for him, and find him, although he is not far from any one of us. Think about this new idea that Paul's proclaiming to these Athenians. God did all of this because he wants to be found by us. God did all this because he wants to be known by us. Imagine this idea. Instead of a bunch of of gods competing and fighting with each other on top of Mount Olympus, that there is a God who loves to be found. Paul says in verse 28, For it's in him that we live and we move and we have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Oftentimes in the New Testament, there's quotes. Usually they're from the Old Testament. These last couple of lines that Paul said are set apart in the text. If you're reading it, they are a quote. Who is Paul quoting here? Is he quoting one of the prophets from the Old Testament? Is he quoting a book of the law? No, he's just quoted a couple of of influential philosophers from Greek society. Epimedes and Aratus. He's quoted these two guys, and it's a sense, in a sense, he's saying to these philosophers, look, you already know some of this stuff anyways. Because if God is a God who loves to be found, we would expect that people would stumble across his voice calling out, come and find me from, from time to time. He says, let me tell you how right you are about this without even knowing it. It is in this God that you live and move and have your being. And, and your philosophers who have said that we are children of the gods, that some, somehow God who looks at us, what he sees is beloved children. He says, they're right about that. What does this all mean? Verse 29. Well, if you're right about that, then therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like the gold or silver or stone or any image made by human design. And skill. If we are God's offspring, then then we should do well to remember that God's not created by us or by the handiwork of our hands or by the, the handiwork of our brains. God isn't created by us. God is something outside of us that has created us and given us life. Verse 30, Paul says, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. For a time, God was long-suffering and bearing with humanity that was inventing their own gods, creating their own idols. He says in the past, God overlooked all that. But now he's commanding everyone everywhere to repent. He has set a day when he's going to judge the world with justice by the man that he's appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul has brought his Athenian friends, to a point in the conversation where he's claiming that something that happens that requires them to repent or there's a reality he's presenting that requires change on their side. And and I think every evangelistic conversation needs to get to that point eventually. Last week, we talked about Paul's experience in uh, in the jail in Philippi and the Philippian jailer uh, in the conversation brings it to a point where he says, What must I do to be saved? 
That's called setting the ball up on the tee and making it really easy for you to have a conversation about what kind of change needs to happen. They're already embracing the new reality. For Paul's conversation in Athens, no one's embracing this new reality yet. Paul's having to bring the conversation to a point where he says, something has happened that requires a change or a response on your part. Paul brings the conversation to this place by saying, for a time God was overlooking this, but now he's done something new where he's proclaimed that there is a day when judgment will happen. And the sign, and the, the sign that's pointing this all out to us is God raising the man who will judge all of humanity from the dead. He's preaching the risen Christ. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council, and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. And among them was Dionysius, and a, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. That's where our story ends for today. Paul puts the message out there, and some people sneer at it, some people reject it, other people believe. And when we're sharing the gospel, if we're trying to be intentional about sharing the gospel with the people around us, we really have to remember to be okay with whatever the results are going to be. We have to really believe in this portrait that God paints of a God who loves to be found. We have to trust that it's the Holy Spirit that is calling out to people, revealing God to people, working in the lives of people around us every single day. And we have to believe that whatever we're doing, our obedience to how we feel like God is moving us in these conversations is the most important thing. When we're having crucial conversations or we're sharing the gospel with people, it's okay if some people sneer at us or reject it. It's okay if some people are moving away. Maybe, maybe we don't know. We don't know. Maybe the seeds that we are planting are going to manifest in, in change in their lives in the coming weeks or years or decades, however long it might be. But any time that you're interacting with someone and trying to bring the gospel to their life, you do really well to remember that the one who created them has been working in their life for years up to this point. The one who created them is the one who's watching over their soul, can see everything, can see the different hang-ups or issues they might have with it. And the one who's working in their lives is the one who, you know, who, who knows when that deal needs to be sealed, as it were. You have to be okay with whatever the results are. We have to trust that it's the Holy Spirit working in the lives of people around us every single day. And, and that it's the Holy Spirit who will bring people to the places where we can have those conversations and, and give us opportunities for the conversations. But it's also that same Holy Spirit who gives us discernment to talk in a way that, that one keeps the conversation going. Uh, it's the Holy Spirit who gives us the wisdom and the empathy that's needed to meet people in the places that they're at. Um, and not just to claim that Jesus took on flesh, but to demonstrate that as we are committed to, to meeting people where they're at, as we, as we boldly climb into the lives of other people. You know, so often I think uh, Christians, and I lump myself in that category, Christians look a lot more like the Apostle Peter when he, the first time he came to, or the second time he came to Antioch, 
And Paul has a conversation where he says, look, Peter came to Antioch, and when he first got there, he was happy to hang out with the Gentiles. But then some other Jews came from Jerusalem, and Peter got really nervous about hanging out with the Gentiles after that. So he was comfortable meeting people where they were at, as long as none of the faithful people were there already judging him for meeting them there. And then as soon as the other believers showed up, the other Christians showed up, then Peter was suddenly very self-conscious about, what does it look like that I'm hanging out and eating with these Gentiles? I think so often our concern is about how other faithful believers are going to picture us hanging out with the wrong people or doing the wrong things or, or making the wrong accommodations to meet people. Um, we're more like Peter in that than we are like Paul. Paul, on the other hand, uh, was an apostle who obeyed God's call to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. If you read carefully through the story of the book of Acts, the first person to be told to go proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles was Peter. But then Peter has all these personal hang-ups with how it is going and speaking to these Gentiles that as you get through the story, Paul ends up being the main one to go and do this. And I just wonder sometimes if things would have been different if Peter wouldn't have been so hung up on what the Jews thought about him eating the wrong foods or sitting at the wrong table. Anyhow, Paul is later on in his ministry writing a letter to the Corinthians. He's making a case that that he's been established as an apostle, that he's a trusted leader in the church, that he's a person of of, uh, authority and and autonomy and can exercise that any way he sees fit. But in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, he says, Although I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I've become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those who are under the law, I became like one who was under the law, although I know that I myself am not under the law. But I did this to win those who were under the law. Then he says, to those who were not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Although I know I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. And I did this to win those who didn't have the law. He says, to the weak I became weak, to win the weak, and I become all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some. Paul's saying all of this because he understands that to be numbered with transgressors is one of the highest privileges that a person can receive when they're following Jesus and trying to proclaim the gospel to other people. You know, when Jesus was doing his ministry here on earth and reaching people with the good news of what God was doing in humanity, it offended people's religious sensibilities. They said of Jesus, he's a glutton. They said he's a drunkard. They said he's a friend of tax collectors. That's the bad one, right? And a friend of sinners. And then many, many, many Jewish people walked past him on the day that he was crucified and shook their heads and said, that is a cursed man. How dare he proclaim to be the one through whom the whole world is going to be blessed. Their minds and their mouths were full of criticism for Jesus. And Jesus is the model that we are following. Jesus is our template for what it means to reach people with the love of God. I wonder, when is the last time that religious people were uncomfortable 
with you and who you are ministering to or your methods? When's the last time that you even just pushed yourself out of your comfort zone to meet people where they're at, to proclaim the gospel that he who knew no sin took on sin, that we might become the righteousness of God? My prayer is that we would be people who bring the presence of Christ into the world around us and that we would be like Paul, although we're greatly disturbed as we look around our city and see the idolatry in it, that we would be willing to go to those places and having those conversations with the people that would infuse it with the gospel, that that Christ has come near.